At home, at the Rue House, we don't get the Home and Garden Network, HGTV. And it's probably a good thing because my productivity rate at home would probably decrease significantly. Uh, if we did have HGTV when we're on vacation and we get a full cable package, uh, it doesn't matter what's programmed on the television. I'm, I want to watch HGTV and I'll have it on all day whenever we are there. Uh, like other networks, you know, there are some shows that I like better than others. I mean, House Hunters is is okay, but it, it gets frustrating for a couple of reasons. You know, first of all, no one is ever content with the status of the kitchen or the bathrooms. <laughs> and apparently a house is completely unlivable if the kitchen or the bathroom is not up to standard. And so you hear the the, the common phrase, oh, oh, this is the first thing that we're going to have to do if we buy this. We need a completely new kitchen because an outdated kitchen, apparently you, apparently you can't use an outdated kitchen. And second, the show encourages financial irresponsibility. Uh, how many episodes do you see where people purchase houses that are within their budgets? Never happens. Say, so, well, we budgeted for 200000 but the house that was 450000 was so much better, so we had to go with that one. And so House Hunters is okay, but the good stuff is in the, the home renovation shows. I love seeing how someone can come in and look at the current state of things and conclude, how can we take this property, which has obviously been well-lived in, and make it even better? So maybe a few walls need to come down. Maybe a kitchen, new kitchen design is appropriate. Sometimes new paint and a fresh carpet is, is really all that you need, and, and it can go a long way. And by the end of the show, and there's this, uh, it's the same house, but it's been carefully updated in order to make it better than it was before. It is now stronger, it's more functional, and it's able to have greater longevity than it was before the remodel. I believe that we are at a critical point right now in the history of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We have a rich history of God's faithfulness here and gospel fruit. We've been growing both numerically and spiritually. We're in many regards the, the healthiest that our church has been in, in many years. And however, right now, the way that we are currently structured um, is not able to sustain how our church is, is moving. The current constitution was written back in the mid-1990s, maybe even a little earlier than that, and it was very successful to meet our needs at that time. Uh, but we are not the same church that we were in 1995. Uh, we are just as dedicated to God's word and being faithful to it as we were back then, our demographics, however, are different. The community, you would agree, is not the same as it was back in the mid-90s. Our, uh, I think I'm saying this word, the plural of focus is foci. Did I say that right? Or is it foci? I don't know. Google said it's foci, so I'm going to go with that. Our foci and our priorities are different. The community that we're reaching is different. Now, without looking at your bulletin, how many of you 
could tell me right now what exactly word for word is the mission statement of our church? Anybody? See, that's a problem. We don't know who we are or where we're going. And so the way that we've been constituted has not been working for us. This isn't a new concept that I'm bringing to you right now. This is something that we've been talking about for, for quite a while. And, and I believe, and our board of stewards believe, that the time is right now for a renovation. Not a raising of the church, not taking it down completely and, and rebuilding something new, but rather we're taking a step back to figure out who we are and what our purpose is in Christ as a church and as individuals in the church. And so today is just an introduction to a series of messages that are going to help us to rediscover who we are and who God wants us to be as a church. It's going to be called the Great Remodel, and it's been broken down into three sections. This first section, which starts today, it will go through the mid-October or so, we'll be looking at the foundations of a biblical church by looking at specifically Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. And then after that, we're going to be looking at the three big church, uh, purposes of the church, which just as a sneak preview, I believe it's to uh, love God love the church, and to love the world. We'll get to that as we go. And finally, starting in January, we're going to look at the church, how those pillars, those three things, supports what we do as individuals and as a church in the home, the family, the workplace, the community, and how we live out God's mission in our everyday lives. So as we open up this amazing letter, imagine with me that you are opening up the blueprints to God's design for the church. This isn't some architect that just makes plans and takes a check and is here and, uh, and then gone. Rather, this is the creator of the universe who has taken you and I and placed us here with the plans on how to build his great enterprise, the church. So would you please stand with me as we read God's word to us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to take these words that are your holy, uh, perfect words, and I want you to shape them, Lord, to help us to realize who we are in Christ in these next number of weeks and months. God, would you take these two simple verses and open up our eyes so we can see the glory of Christ and what he has for us as a church, Lord. Open your word as you open our hearts and our eyes, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So if we want to renovate our church for the glory of God, the first thing that we have to do is take these words seriously. Take God's word seriously. Paul opens up this letter in a, in a very characteristic way for the first century letter. Um, but it's much different than how we would write letters. When we write letters today, uh, we typically start off with the greeting of who we're writing to. Dear Harry, Sally, Bob, Joe, Susan, whoever it is, dear so-and-so. We might put a date above it, but the, we typically identify the recipient first. 
but not so in Paul's day. In Paul's day, it was typical for the sender to identify themselves first, then address the recipients. But in many ways, Paul opens up his letter here in a very uncharacteristic way for first century uh, because he um, supplies his credentials. But notice that his credentials are like nobody else that has written letters like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So immediately here, right in verse 1, we get a sense of authenticity and we get a sense of authority. This isn't just some random guy. And it isn't someone who has uh, authority to write this because they went to school for X amount of years, they got a degree, and, and then they, they, they got a job. Paul claims apostleship here. And the word apostle means someone who is sent out as a representative and someone who has the authority to speak the words of the one who sent him. But this is not an apostle from some political leader. Paul writes that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. And although he, he would write in 2 Corinthians, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, it won't be on the screen, that those who are in Christ Jesus, you and I who are believers, we're ambassadors for Christ, we, we represent him. The term apostle is a special calling that doesn't exist anymore. It was reserved for someone who had seen and spent time with the, the resurrected Lord and was sent out personally as a representative of him at his beckoning. An apostle was specifically sent out by Christ in the early days of the church in order to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that had largely not heard of him yet. And so then notice that he goes on to write the source of his apostleship. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So this isn't an office that he chose. It's not something that he saw on Indeed.com and threw his resume out there and interviewed with Jesus and, and got the job. In fact, without intervention from the Lord himself, Paul would have continued on his journey to murder those who were following Jesus. Paul is an apostle because God wanted him to be an apostle. And so because he's an apostle of the will of God, he is under the authority of God. He doesn't have the right to say whatever he wants. He is bound by the will of God to do whatever the will of God is in communicating the truth about God. So right away in these first words of this letter, we're confronted with the fact that these words, these two verses and beyond, are the very words of our Creator. And if it is the will of the Maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, to bestow His authority into the, the pen and the, the very uh, mouth of Paul, then we ought to see this as God's Word. And though Paul had a personality and he had a context by which he was writing in, 
It is still the words that God is using even today to communicate His binding word to us. Yet many of us today live our lives as if these words either aren't binding or they're just simply good suggestions on how to have a decent life. How many of us read our Scripture picking and choosing which verses we like and don't like and try to put into practice those that we like and forget about the ones that that we don't? Or how many of us only see the red letters as authoritative or words from God? Or worse yet, how many of us claim Christ and yet we won't even bother to take time to, to open up His Word because we don't like to read? This is the Word of God communicated to us. If you got a card in the mail from someone that you loved and cared for, how many of us would just discard it and just say, I see the card that they wrote to me, but you know, I really, I don't care that much to take the time to read the card. No, if it's someone that you care about, you can't wait to open it up and read it and see what they say. See their handwriting. See the curvatures of the writing that they, they used. But yet, all the while, this just collects dust on a lot of our shelves around our nightstand. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, is writing the very words of God to us. So we need to pay attention and take seriously the words and the things that he has to tell us in this letter. And second, we should be confident that this letter is for us. This letter is for us. One of the encouraging things about this letter is it's personal attention to the reader. Yeah, it's, it's totally about God. He is the focus. He is the hero. He is the champion. But the hero of this letter loves his people, and he loves his church, and he wants them to dwell together in truth and in community. So Paul writes in the second part of verse 1, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And maybe you bristled a little bit when you read that verse. Saints? What was he talking about? Perhaps you grew up like I did with, with an unbiblical understanding of what sainthood means. That sainthood was only reserved for a few select super-Christians who were holy and extraordinary, that lived such sold-out lives and had miracles attributed to them, and that these saints couldn't even really become saints until the, the church does some paperwork and researches and says that they are beatified. But that is not how the Bible defines a saint. The word saint is the Greek word hagios, and you don't need to remember that, but you need to remember that it also means holy ones. Ones who are set apart. Never in Scripture does this term refer specifically to a small number of uber-Christians who lived radically sold-out lives and did crazy things. The word does, however, refer to anyone who is positionally in Christ has trusted in Christ 
for their salvation and his person and his work in order to get a right standing with Christ. Paul is writing to saints, the common, everyday Christian who is trying to discover how to live and grow in more Christ-likeness. Yes, there is an aspect in which we are to pursue holiness and to grow in holiness in our everyday lives. But there's also a positional holiness that God gives us that is irrevocable when we come to know the Lord and Savior. If you're a Christian, if you have a profession of faith, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are a saint. You are a holy one. So just as Paul was given his apostleship by the will of God, you have become a saint through that same will. You are a holy one to God because God wanted you to be. And as saints, Paul addressed this letter to you and to me. Notice again here, in the second part of this verse, Paul writes to the saints who are in Ephesus. This is a tricky little sentence here when it comes to something called uh, textual criticism. It's how scholars, especially liberal scholars, try to debunk the Bible, criticizing Scripture. Because in the earliest copies of this letter that we have, the, the title Ephesus is not in there. It just says, to the saints who are in, and then there's a blank. Now, we have good reason to believe that this was addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus. And at the same token, we have a good reason why there's a blank in the location. Many of these letters that Paul wrote to these, uh, these uh, city churches were called circular letters. So it would come to the, the uh, main house church uh, at Ephesus, And maybe the elder there, if there's a scribe there, would copy the letter and they know it's going to go to all the house churches so they would leave it blank. Or if they knew that the letter was going to go on to Laodicea or Colossae or Pergamum or something like that, they would leave that spot blank so that when it got there, the the Christians reading the Scripture in their home churches could read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the saints who are in fill in the blank. So... With that in mind, we can be confident that this here means that though the original audience was in Ephesus, this letter is for you, to the saints at Emmanuel, to the saints at Trio, to the saints at First Presbyterian, to the saints at True Vine to the saints at Zion, to the saints at Quamba, to the saints at Hillman, to those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Mora and are faithful in Christ Jesus. This is for us. And third and finally, we should receive grace and peace from God. These words have authority They come through God's apostle. They're for you and me and for Emmanuel Baptist Church. But what is this message for us? Verse 2 tells us. Grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now those two concepts, grace and peace, we see that the source of those things is God the Father and God the Son. That is, those are all the key words of Ephesians. You want to know what Ephesians is about? It's about grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They permeate everything that the Father gives us in Jesus, and they're the means by which we live out our new lives in Christ within the community of faith, the church. This concept of, of grace uh, was familiar in the greetings of, of the Roman world. It was often used to denote favor of the gods or even the emperor himself. So if people were writing a letter, it wasn't uncommon for them to say, grace to you, meaning the, having the emperor's favor upon you. Recognizing that Paul reminds them here that they are under the authority, care, and protection of not the emperor, but rather a new and better king, he also reminds them that the grace, I'll put quotes around that, from these gods and the emperor is not grace at all. They're rewards for good attitudes and good behaviors. If you do the right things, if you honor Caesar the way that you are to honor him, well, grace to you. If you had loyalty and, and your attitude was good, grace to you. But if there were any slip-ups, that was it. The grace that comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, however, is unconditional because it is not given because of anything you do or have done or that you have not done. Rather, it is given in spite of what you've done or what you have failed to do. Simply out of the love of God for you. So whereas the gods and the emperor compelled loyalty in order to earn favor, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you favor simply because they want to. And you are then desiring to honor and worship Him. There is no freedom under the emperor's grace, but only bondage. Only in the free love of God given without qualification through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of God the Son can we truly receive grace and peace and freedom. The world will promise you a sense of grace, but you will constantly live your life wondering if you are enough if you've done enough, if you've blown it. That's no way to live. But in Christ Jesus, you are received freely by His grace.
But Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by sending these authoritative words. He is imparting this grace on us, God's undeserved favor for sinners like you and like, like me. But notice also that he imparts peace as well. This idea is rooted in the Hebrew term shalom, which is um, sort of a peace, but it's more of a wholeness. It's not an absence of conflict. It's not everything going right in your life. It is, an, it is well with my soul regardless of all the things that are going on around me that I can stand strong on a rock though the wind is trying to blow me over. Jesus told of his disciples in John 14 that he would give them his very peace through faith. And this is a peace that's contrasted with our old lives before we knew Jesus, that were marked by inner chaos, maybe angst or guilt or shame. The peace that Christ gives us is a shelter in the storm. It's a confidence that though the world could come crashing down on us and, and though we might be surrounded by chaos and anxiety, we know that we're okay because we are taken, by, we're taken care of by the one who loves us and died for us. It's a kind of rest knowing that the one who controls the spinning of the globe loves me and has authority over whatever comes my way. This is a peace that internalizes and understands Jesus' words when he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you, so then, get this, let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The love of Christ and the peace of Christ dispels the fear and the anxiety of life. This grace, this undeserved gift from God in which he accepts us in spite of us and gives us wholeness in spite of our brokenness is mediated in and only through the one in whom Paul is an apostle for, Christ Jesus. So in response, we ought to receive this grace by trusting in Christ, by obeying Christ, and beginning to order our lives and our church according to his good and authoritative word. You know, those remodeling shows on, on HGTV are fascinating, how a, how a contractor or an interior designer can just walk right in and see how things can get better and stronger and last longer. Our church has really good bones. Founded in 1937. But it's time for a makeover. Will you join me in listening to the voice of Christ in this next year by heeding uh, the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Mora so that we may enjoy the blessings of God's grace and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.